right. Hello, everybody. Andrea Pacini here from Ideas on Stage. We help business professionals create and deliver great presentations. And I'm super excited today because finally, finally, I have the opportunity to have a conversation with somebody whose role, I think, is the top of the top, the best of the best when it comes to communication and public speaking. I'm here with David Whitney, who is a stand-up comedian. So, David, thank you very much for being with us. I'm pleased to be here. David, the, the reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you is because when we work with our clients, business owners, business professionals, I always tell them that if they want to present effectively, they need to get to a point where they can present, we say, naked. And when I say presenting naked, what we mean is that they need to remove they, they need to take off their protection they need to remove all the barriers so it's just them the audience and their idea mm -hmm. and i think that there's nobody like you like a stand-up comedian who knows how to do that in, in the best possible way presenting naked so that that's why now First of all, I've got so many questions, so we need to see how much we can cover. But first of all, I'm really interested, why, why stand-up comedy for you? How did you get into this space? Um, well, it was sort of by accident a little bit. I trained uh, with our mutual friend, Michael Rickwood, at uh, uh, classical theatre. Uh, you know, and I wanted to work in film and theatre. And um, uh, through not having much work, I sort of felt filled the time creatively with stand-up as something that I could, you know, be able to be creative, be able to be a performer and not have to just sit and wait for the phone to ring because mm. a lot of acting is, you know, you're waiting for being given permission, whether it be from casting directors and agents and stuff like that. Uh, whereas with a, being a stand-up, you can just get up and do it. You can just, you know, find out where your local nights are and just, you know, that, the distance between having an idea and creating it is getting further and further in this age. You know, you read um, sort of uh, journals, a sort of golden era of experimental theatre in the 60s and 70s, when there were fringe theatres all over the place. And you just, people had an idea and they put it on. Now, uh, you know, retail is so expensive the estate is so you know london is so expensive there aren't empty warehouses and empty pubs that can be converted into fringe venues because they're all being monetized as much mm. as possible but stand-up is still so pure it's so the the, uh, the naked bones of a performance is just one person and a microphone you, you I mean, it's nice to have a spotlight, but you don't even really need a, you don't even really need a microphone. It's just a person talking to an audience. So you don't need to raise money for sets and costumes, and rehearsal spaces. And, uh, I mean, you need publicity, but, you know, social media is now making that free as well, free-ish. Um, but so it, it suddenly made me very empowered to take control over my own creative life and my own creative profession that I didn't have to, I didn't have to go and get a team together or anything like that. It was, you know, solo flying. Of course, perversely now, the thing that I relish in when I do do a play or something is being part of a team because stand up is so lonely. Um, 
but yeah so that's why i became a stand up yeah, nice and and let's get straight into the communication element of being a stand up comedian now first of all i'm really curious to understand from your perspective let's talk about fear of public speaking yeah are you afraid of public speaking or were you afraid of public speaking the first times you did it what's your relationship with it or if you're not if, if for you maybe because you have a lot of experience if it's not fear but do you feel something some nerves yeah well there, there, there are lots of different types of fears and nerves aren't there and when i first started doing stand-up it was very uh uncomfortable for me to be myself on stage mm. i was used to being a character i was used mm. to being um sorry but my email's coming through um i was used to you know playing a role playing a character and if you were in a dud if you're in a rubbish play or rubbish production you know you would have a drink with an audience member afterwards and you'd agree with them. Yes, it's terrible. Sorry about it. So I waste your evening. <laughs> uh, the play is terrible. Or the director was uh, unbearable or my cast members are, you know, it's never your fault. Whereas when you stand on stage as a stand up, you are, you used the term naked earlier. You are utterly naked. And when the audience don't like it, it's not them saying they don't like a play or they don't like, uh, you know, an interpretation. They're saying they don't like you. <laughs> and that that's a lot more hurtful and a lot more um, uh, exposing yeah. than, uh, than anything I'd experienced as an actor. So, but, um, and, and how do you deal with that, with, with those nerves or with that fear maybe? Well, one just, you know, flight hours, the more you do it, the more at home you are up there, you know. Um, I mean, with stand-up, really, there is no substitute for, for hours doing it. You, you can't practice. You can do your homework, you can do your prep, and, you know, when yeah, I certainly go through periods of time of being very uh what's the word um uh, uh, lazy for mm. word, there's a better term the, i know i've got enough jokes in my head so mm. i know i can get away with it now you know there's you know i haven't done that most of my stuff on you know i've only done very small bits on television so you know millions of people haven't seen my routines so you become a little bit um you, you the, the, when you knew the pressure to write new jokes is paramount because you haven't got any jokes. <laughs> but once you've got a couple of hours of material, it's very easy to, um, to stop, uh, that, stop that desperate need to write new. And then suddenly you find yourself at a gig somewhere, you know, you've driven three hours to get there. And you suddenly feel like a bit of a fraud because all of your jokes are old and suddenly suddenly you feel utterly like uh, found out that you, you know, and sometimes this is just in your head. Sometimes it's people that have come back to see you again and you're mm. doing the same stuff and you've let them down. But it, it's amazing the nerves that you get in your own head. Like literally I can be playing to 400 people. And if I know there are two that saw me two years ago, and I start to panic, 
what jokes was I doing two years ago? I don't want them to think I haven't written anything new in two years. Mm-hmm. And I start to sort of go in that tailspin in your mind. Uh, it's the same when there's a booker in. So, you, you know, I can walk out as, again, like a couple hundred people and have absolutely no nerves. But I hear, oh, so-and-so's here that books some really well-paid gigs in Dubai or something like that. And suddenly you start playing to that one person rather than to the crowd and suddenly you're rubbish. Um, Mm, So you've got to not let those things get in your head. You've got to remember that you're good at what you do. And I did a best man speech a Mm. couple of weeks ago. And and another person, another mutual friend of Michael and I who went to drama school with him, and all day, people are going, oh, we're looking forward to your speech because I'm a stand-up comedian, so they're all expecting it to be gangbustersly funny. And, you know, I'd, I'd done some prep, um, but, you know, he's my best mate, so if I can't stand up and talk about my best mate for five to ten minutes, <laughs> you know, I'm a public speaker by profession, and he is my friend. I don't need to research him. <laughs> I've known him for 20-odd years. and stuff. So... But then sat watching the bridesmaids' speeches that were before me, I started to get very nervous. They they had obviously done lots of work. They had notes, they had a folder, they had they had baby photos, they had a slideshow, and I had like three lines on a piece of paper, sort of like the three funniest stories that I could think of about Tim, and, and I was just going to tell those stories. And I was looking at my little piece of paper, and there. And I started to get nervous. And then I realized I was going down the wrong track in my mind because I was trying to think, how can I top? Hmm. Everyone's thinking, oh, he's a stand-up comedian. He's going on last. He's the headliner. The headliner at a wedding. It's a ridiculous concept in itself. And all of that was absolutely the wrong way to be thinking. The purpose of my speech is to share the love of this guy who's having his big day and in an amusing way and there's always a little bit of shaming in a a best man speech of here's another stupid thing he did (laughs) but i had to just remind myself to just rather than try and think of it as a gig (laughs) like i'm gonna storm this wedding (laughs) remind myself of my friendship to the message that i'm trying to uh to put a you know, the point of it. Yeah. And, I, and then as soon as I refocused on Tim rather than on me, <laughs> it's his wedding after all. <laughs> the speech was fine. It was great. Mm-hmm. You know, people laughed when they were meant to laugh and they were moved when they were meant to move. And then, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always, isn't it? It's always about the audience. We always tell people when you give a presentation, I'm going back to our world business presentations, people think that it's their presentation. No, it's always about them not about you. And, and David, you mentioned a couple of times preparation. Let's talk about preparation because some people, you tell me, but some people don't realize that maybe they think they watch a stand-up comedian and they think that, oh, this, this is pure talent and they're just, they're great. But what about preparation? What about what happens before you get to that point? Well, as I said, it's very easy to become complacent um, mm-hmm. once you're good at it. <laughs> uh, 
uh, and you shouldn't ever become complacent. And I go through periods of complacency where I don't write new material and I turn up to gigs having not really given it a passing thought until I arrived. And I mm. sort of like, you know, but that's a lot of flight hours that have got me to the position that I can do that. Mm. Um, but I, even though I can do it, I shouldn't do it. Yeah. Um, Why? Because you're, if you're doing it like, if you're being, You, every time you take the stage, there should be a purpose to what you're doing that night, mm. right? You're not just uh, going through the motions to pick up your check. You should be working for something, whether that's a new joke or you decided that I'm going to focus on acting out my stories more or I'm going to try and um, roll with the audience a bit more rather than stay with my lines and that there's an active objective mm. to that that gig um, and that keeps you alive and in the moment that the the whole trick of stand-up is that it's that it is off the top of your head that it's not rehearsed mm. and you as soon as you start being bound to your words then you lose the illusion of spontaneity. Mm. Let's talk about that then. Does that mean then, so I, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, David, I assume that you either have a script or at least an outline of what you want to communicate. And then how, how do you manage to be in the moment? So if somebody, if something happens, that's perhaps not expected, do you stay to script or do you adapt it? Hmm. No, you should never be too bound to your script. Hmm. Um, they should be uh, like islands that you're swimming to. So, hmm. I mean, it's different, of course, if you're a corporate speaker and you've got a very specific thing that you need to get across. But when I take the stage, uh, I mean, if you're doing like an hour show is a bit different than if you're doing a 20-minute club set. But when I'm doing a 20-minute club set, which is sort of natural... Mm. late night uh, comedy club situation I'll like so I've got a routine about the price of beer I've got a routine about internet dating uh, I've got a routine about uh, where I live in London mm. I'm probably going to do all three of those routines but I don't know in which order mm. Uh, they're like different it's like, like it's like I'm a DJ with a box of records mm. I travel with my box of 200 records I only play 12 of them a night mm. but, I, but I've got all 200 with me if I need them right um, I don't know which ones I'm going to play or in which order I'm going to play them but once I've put the record on the, the routine is structured and is as written you know it's yeah I'm line i'm not improvising every line but as i reach the end of a bit i'm making a decision on what how the audience is responding mm. uh do should i are they liking the political stuff are they liking the the dirty stuff are they like are they a bit are they being a bit are they being a bit uptight 
So do I want to be soft with them because they're uptight or should I go in harder to, to sort of smack them out of it? And I'm making all these decisions on the fly uh, as, as I'm talking. How do you do um, that? How do you, how do you understand if you are connecting with an audience? Yeah, it's, if just, you are, mm. it's just listening. Mm. Um, at drama school, you're constantly told, listen, and mm. you don't understand <laughs> what they mean. Of course I'm listening. How can I not be listening? I'm waiting for my cues so that I can say my lines. But that's not what I mean. When you're really listening to the room on the quality of silence in that little gap between feed and punchline, how much fidgeting there's going on in the room, how much, uh, you know, the, the, the sound of the laughter, the shock sounds when you say something outrageous, how much are they, how much are they in step with you or are they being offended? Are they, you know, and all that data's coming in, into you and you're making a thousand decisions on that in the moment. And the trick is to adapt, but not be led by. Mm. It's still your show. You're not, you're adapting to the room and you're playing the room, but you're not letting the, letting the room play you. Uh, it's a very different scenario. And comics that are new tend to try and play the gig as they rehearsed it. Right. Mm. They're playing the room in their head, not the room that's in front of them. And that normally ends to you dying. Mm. Um, as soon as you're not in the room with that audience and being alive to it, you're boring. Mm. And, and I'm sure it takes a lot of practice and, and skills to get to the point where you can really be able to listen because... I think what I see, David, especially in business, when we're talking about business presentations, what people want to do, they've been invited to speak, so they speak. Yeah. Very few people have this huge ability yeah. that you guys have to listen. And, and you mentioned rehearsal. I want to go back to that. Tell me about your rehearsal practice. If you do what you do, how do you go about it? How, how well, often, how many times? Yeah, I mean... I don't a lot. Mm. Um, you, if I've got a new bit, when I've got a new bit of material, mm -hmm. the exciting time is when it's not set. Mm. You know, when you're still, so I mentioned earlier that I have this routine about the price of beer. Yeah. This started because I was sat in a bar, pub uh, with a, a, an act who had just finished that's not important. Uh, we, just, we just got to the pub. We were very thirsty. And they're pouring the beer. And it's too frothy. And he's, pour, he's pouring it straight into the drip tray uh, to pour off all the foam. And I said, um, God, uh, you wouldn't fill up your car like that, would you? Beer's expensive. And he's just like, it's about a tenner he's just put down in the drain. And I've, and I've had this idea that pubs would be far more efficient if we had to pour our own pints, like mm. a petrol pump. 
like filling up your car mm. and you'd see the dial go up as you poured <laughs> your pint. <laughs> so then that was the start of the idea of this routine. That bit is not in the routine anymore. Because oh, right. every time I take the stage, uh, I would ad lib a little bit, would put on a new bit, would move a little mm. bit around. And that's the time when the thing's exciting because it's mm. growing organically and you're cutting bits. Mm. And as I said, now, now the bit doesn't, doesn't have anything about petrol pumps. It mentions that beer is more expensive than oil. And, and then I go on to say, we go to war for oil and beer is eight times the price. Belgium mm. must be shitting itself. I saw that one. I saw um, that one on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, you, so uh, you see, it's completely gone away from its nemesis. Because mm. that, uh, and uh, from, from yes. the nemesis, it, it's genesis rather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, I find, I mean, again, it's different when you're doing a corporate speech about mm. something. But when I'm looking for funny, uh, sitting down at home with a notebook or a laptop to try mm. and write funny is incredibly difficult. Mm. But if you put me on stage with half an idea and then I start talking about it and I'm in that heightened awareness of the stage, I'll find funny. I'll just... You know, and then it's just a case of remembering it and putting it back in the act. Um, having said that, I should still do more desk time than I do do. Mm. Because if you're own, you, you kind of, you, the desk time, it makes you a better writer. You may not come up with the zinger line sat at a desk because it's such an unnatural stale. But if you're constantly writing, if you're constantly taking on different subject matters, you just become a better writer. Mm. So when you are on stage and you're playing around with it, you've got better skills. Also, you've got to have that first half an idea to begin with. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, and it's, it's amazing how, like that, the, the thing about the price of beer, I could have said that and then never thought of it again. You know, mm. I'm, I'm sure I say things in conversation. We all say things in conversation that could have been built into a bit, but I just didn't think it was good enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And you kind of got, you don't want to be that guy <laughs> who, uh, whenever he says something half funny, gets out a notebook to write it down. <laughs> but you have to monitor what you're thinking about and know your own mind that's another thing no really think be know what you really think uh there on the circuit at the moment there is a platalion of young sort of liberal uh trendy kids doing anti-brexit material mm. and don't get me wrong i'm anti-brexit myself but there is nothing less funny than mm. listening to some righteous liberal kid <laughs> say, oh, everybody who voted for Brexit is racist. And they couldn't tell you what the EU did if they put a gun to their head. Because mm. right? it's not really their opinion. Mm. It, it's a secondhand opinion. Mm. So, it is, so it's, they're not in the moment. They're not being real. 
they're not it's not from them not and therefore they are not funny and they are boring yeah um, let's talk about funny david because so here's the thing because i'm always trying to make the connection with our own world of business presentations now sometimes business presenters they know that they tend to be too serious and they would love to be a bit more funny. Right. They say, how do I find out, how can I be more funny if I'm a business presenter and, and I'm too serious? What, what do you think about this? Do you think it is possible if you are not a stand-up comedian to find the funny? And yeah. if so, how, how would you do that? Well, some, <laughs> you know, some people aren't funny. Uh, <laughs> um, and you know, if you if you if you're not um, you know the type of person that that does so, you know, there's a certain amount of perspective that you need mm. to make things funny. So, why Amsi International has always used uh, humour as a way of exposing totalitarian regimes because totalitarian regimes want you to have no perspective. They want, you to, they want you to obey the rules and shut up. As soon as you have perspective on an issue you, and you see it for all it is, you see its absurdity. And it's in things absurdity that you find funny. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, there's nothing funny about how efficient my iPhone is. It's a lot funny about uh, how bound to it I am. <laughs> mm. Or, um, so you see what I mean? You have to come back to find the funny. Now, I would suggest that if somebody isn't a humorous person, if they don't crack jokes socially, they probably shouldn't try to in this in a public speaking, they should focus on the message that their speech is meant to get across. <coughs> um, sorry. Um, because nothing is more uncomfortable than somebody trying to be a cad. Um, but if you are a humorous person and you do, you know, it is something that you do in conversation you take the mickey out yourself and other people and you, you're always a little bit naughty, then just thread you into the speech, put you into it. Mm. And, you know, obviously, you know, I, I live in a profession where it is my job to be inappropriate. <laughs> and I realize that there are in business rules of what is and isn't appropriate, which do not obtain to me i can you know it's my job to stand outside of the lines so obviously there are things if (laughs) you're doing a presentation about you know uh i I don't know business presentation yeah yeah if any if you're doing a business presentation about um i don't know a new braking system yeah uh maybe don't do any jokes about um child fatalities in car crashes uh you, you know uh <laughs> but <laughs> or maybe maybe do maybe do do 
Because, but be careful. But be careful. Yeah, you got to be careful. But it, oh, as I, I say, the, the, the if to get the point of your speech off, you have to focus on what it is. What is exciting about this new braking system? Mm. What is that makes it important? You have to focus on that. But to make it funny, you have to come out from the braking. You have to have the perspectives where the jokes are about somebody who doesn't have the brakes and then they have the car crash or um, somebody who spent all their money on leather trousers instead of brakes and now they got their legs amputated due to a car crash. They, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the jokes aren't going to be in the brakes. The jokes are in the world with the brakes. When you step back, yeah. Exactly. yeah. David, how do you deal with a difficult audience. I'm sure you've had some experiences like that. Perhaps you you tell a joke and you were expecting everybody to laugh and and nobody does, or, or vice versa. Or or if you if you, before you were talking about listening and if you listen and you see that they are being a bit difficult, what how do you go about that? I mean, this happens, you know, the first couple of minutes of most gigs not everything will go mm. as last night the audience were very cold from the get-go mm. and you just remember it's a conversation mm. you've got all the lines but you're still it's still a conversation so they still have a responsibility to do their part and if they're not doing their part, feel free to call them out on it. I mean, probably in a more polite way than I do. If you're in <laughs> arena, but you know, how, how do you do it? Well, I mean, <laughs> uh, I'll say something like, um, "Is English everybody's first language in this?" Room? <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I'll um, I'll take the Mickey out of them for being pretty. You know, I got lots of jokes about Brexit, for instance, and I play because I comedy clubs tend to be inner city they tend to be liberal people going to them mm. so as a general rule the audiences in comedy clubs are all anti-brexit mm. now there's nothing interesting in me going isn't brexit shit and the audience agreeing yeah. that's not interesting so i kind of play with the idea that i might not be a brexiteer and i might be for yeah. brexit um so I'll just mention Brexit and then I go, and I go, Oh, feel the tension. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like, you know, play around with, and I go, Oh God, everybody's thinking, what side's he on? Is he the same side as me? What if he's on the other side to me and I've already laughed at him. <laughs> uh, and you just sort of play around. I mean, they're, yeah. they're sort of conceited jokes, but it, it's, it's playing. It, it's, as I said, um, there was an old uh, comedian of the old theatre type of he, uh, Maxwell, uh, sort of like all-round entertainer, singer, uh, dancer type um, entertainer, and he used to sign off with, "Ladies and gentlemen, tonight you have been half," meaning that you know, the audience is half. He's a one-man show, but he can't do it on his own that the audience is half and, you know, and their reaction to things there, you know, it, it's tougher. I imagine. Well, 
I do know because I've given these types of things, but in conference rooms when people have probably got laptops open in front of them and they're it is harder, you've got a sort of a disconnect. Mm. But the more you do you more you try to to connect, to talk directly to them and respond in the moment to and it sounds so airy fairy when I talk about the energy in the room, but it is. Mm. And if you are reading from notes and you're doing your speech as planned mm. rather than like even me talking to you now, I'm judging how much you nod, uh, where your laughter's come to slightly meter how I'm talking. That's how conversations work. That isn't because I'm being false. It's because we're having a conversation. I didn't prepare these answers. I didn't, uh, you know, I'm, I, I haven't decided a way to say it. Uh, this is the way I'll say my line. Uh, <laughs> you know, these things are coming in the moment in a reaction from what you've said and, mm. uh, and my own thought process as I go off on something. If you've got none of that in your public speaking, if you're not, you're not responding to their noddings of head and stuff, again, if they're giving you nothing, it is tough. Yeah. If they're behind, you know, you don't know if everybody's got laptops open, you don't know if they're on Facebook or what, you know, yeah. But you want but, to make that connection. Yeah. You yeah. Want to... Eye contact. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, not, not not so it's false yeah you know there's nothing worse than that i, I did a speed away i don't know if you have this stuff in your country we've got this thing now if you get a speeding ticket mm. instead of um uh, getting the points on your license and therefore your insurance go up you can go to a a workshop where you get given a talk about why speeding's bad oh. uh, uh and they teach and they tell you it's really naughty because it's dangerous. And you go home, oh, I had no idea. I'll drive slower from now on. And then, and then your insurance doesn't go up. Uh, and I went to this one, and this guy obviously felt that he made more of a point if he did eye contact. And it was just so, oh, it was so icky. And you, you can make eye contact with somebody without making eye contact. You know? In a natural way, right? Yeah. Like a conversation, yeah. as you Talk mentioned. Talk to them, not at them. Mm. Uh, like that one. I, I spent a lot of time in my first uh, couple of years doing stand-up talking to the ether above people's heads. Yeah, because I was nervous to actually engage, mm -hmm. to actually talk to them. Uh, I mean, obviously, one is talking up, you know, when you're capturing thoughts and memories. But I'm saying when you making a point you know you're talking to a bank of people so you can't make eye contact with all of them at the same time but talking to them rather than at them a, uh, well there, a lot of public speakers talk to the area above your head rather than talking to you true and that's going to make it even harder true to make that connection yeah yeah david i've got one more question uh-huh what do you do behind, if you do anything, I don't know, behind the curtain before going on stage? Is there anything that you do, or maybe even the day before? I don't know. 
Well, directly beforehand, sometimes you don't need to do anything. If you're ready, you're ready to go and you're ready. But sometimes I just kind of feel that I don't, I'm not ready. I don't feel funny. I don't, mm. I don't feel ready to rock. Um, and then I find that just doing something physical helps mm. because it takes you out of your mind a bit. Right. So I, whether it's star jumps or some push ups or, um, uh, or ju just jumping up and down or shadow boxing. Huh. Um, because it gets the blood going, it gets your, your heart rate, and then you, you've got a physical sensation and you're back in your body, not in your head. If you're cold, a, a gig is a moving train and you need to get on the train at the same pace as the train's going. You can't, you know, just walk on, amble onto it. And, or it's a cold room and you have to come with the energy. Um, and I don't mean that you, you should come on either as a stand-up or as a public speaker, sort of like as some sort of like wrestling hype man. Tony Robbins, I don't know whether yeah. you... <laughs> but you, 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 should, you should have an energy about you. And just, uh, if I feel, oh shit, I'm, I'm not ready, just doing something physical helps me get, a physic get in my body, out of my head, and then I can, and then I can go for it. Nice. No, that's great. And I, and I said it was the last question, but I've got one more. Yeah. <laughs> well, because you, in this conversation, you used a lot of analogies and also stories. And that's what I find, which I love from, from stand-up comedians. You guys do use a lot of analogies and stories. What, why is that? Um... I don't know. I think it's just a very, you know, it's a good way of communicating. I suppose it comes back, I and mean, it's quite a, it's quite a tired structure of a joke, mm. saying this thing is like this thing. Mm. Yeah, it's, um, uh, it, but but it, but it's also true, <laughs> you know, sort of like. Um, trying to go to you know get fit classes after a breakup of a relationship uh is like you know uh rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic you know it's, it's that is the, the the same a is like b pointing out the absurdity of something by putting a comparison helps highlight the, highlighting the absurdity is most of comedy yeah. uh, wrapped up in various different ways but the more imaginative way you can do it the more colorful it is so metaphors and analogies are are your are your 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 your, your premium tools for coloring in your set nice yeah and even if you don't need to be funny, but I, I love that. And, and I think business professionals can apply that in their own presentations because when you use an analogy, you are, you are connecting something the audience perhaps is not yet familiar with to something they do know. And when you make that connection, that's when learning happens. So even in business, I always recommend that people do that. David, 
Thank you so much. I achieved, I reached my dream of interviewing a stand-up comedian. So I'm super happy about it. And I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience have learned a lot as well. And yeah, thank you so much again. You are in London. I'm in London. Perhaps one day we can catch up and uh, come have... down the yeah. Come down the backyard comedy club any Thursday you like. And they're nearly every Thursday. We'll do. And then perhaps we can go and have a beer and we can see whether it's more expensive than. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, David. <laughs>